Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, human beings, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. Since the beginning of the pandemic, brand loyalty and trust has changed. From sustainability to safety, consumers now expect companies to acknowledge the realities of their products. Our guest today, Chief Marketing Officer of Pernod Ricard North America, Pam Forbes, knows the importance of responsible marketing. Pam has a super impressive marketing and digital transformation background, working with brands including the Walt Disney Studios, PepsiCo, and Frito-Lay. Since joining Pernod Ricard, Pam has led the consumer-centric marketing initiatives that address critical topics such as drinking responsibly, hate speech, and voting. Pam, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thank you. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Appreciate it. Well, I am really happy to have you here and have you represent Pernod Ricard. We've had lots of different alcohol brands, spirits, beers, the world's first carbon negative vodka. We've had Belvedere, President on, Rodney Williams, incredibly inspiring people. Also, AB InBev talk about how social impact has become not just marketing, but really a core part of these organizations' businesses. And even though I know you have a CMO title, if you can talk a little bit about how things like drinking responsibly, combating hate speech, protecting voter rights, how that has become part of the business, not just marketing of the business. Well, it starts with our company and our company mission and philosophy. So Pernod Ricard, a French company with big brands like Absolute, Jameson, Malibu, Glenlivet. So a large house of brands. Sole purpose is creators of conviviality. It's a French term that just means unlocking human connection. And you can't have that unlocking of human connection, conviviality, when you have social vitriol in social media, when you have irresponsible drinking that does not condone that mission of our company. So it starts there. And then our brands each have a unique ethos, a unique DNA, and they have their own reasons for being. And today's consumer doesn't just want to buy brands. They want to buy into brands. They want to understand where that brand comes from, what its mission is, and wants to see it walk the talk too. So we've been working really hard to really dig deep into the historical DNA. Some of these brands are from the 1700s, like Martel, Cognac. So you really need to understand where those brands came from, what their core values and missions are, and how can they authentically step into the world and be part of change and conversation. How hard has it been? Because you sit on the top of these brands, like you said, it's a house of brands, and some of them are centuries and centuries and centuries old. Is it top down? Is it bottom up? Is it a little bit of both? Because some of these brands, and I'm sure you have examples unto themselves, have already always been very mindful or social impact and is part of its vision and its mission. Whereas others, you probably have to bring along and bring them under the fold of the parent company. Can you talk a little bit about that tension or that dynamic? It definitely has to start with the core DNA of the brand and its origins and its beginning. And when I came on board, we worked with each brand company, like Irish distillers in Ireland or the absolute company in Sweden, to really help make sure we in the US and globally, in fact, really understood that DNA. So we call it building the timeless story of the brand, what its true DNA is and what it stands for and what it stands against. Once we understood that, we immersed ourselves in current human and cultural trends, insights to make sure that we could tell the timeless story in a very timely way that was authentic and relevant 
to the consumer, but also core and authentic to the brand. And so we worked very much in partnership with the brand companies and the local market companies to understand that DNA, craft the timeless story, to develop a big idea that we could share in a timely expression of that brand. And it makes obviously a lot of sense. And I think there's an expectation when you are a spirits company that you're going to focus on responsible behavior, responsible consumption, things like that. At what point did the company expand that? I think you called it conviviality. I like that. I don't even know what it is in French. Maybe it's the same. I have no idea. How the company expanded that conviviality to, I wouldn't say third rail issues, but more sensitive issues that aren't really germane to the business. Businesses obviously have found themselves commenting on things that are outside of their core expertise for good reason, because like you said earlier, consumers expect more, demand more. They want to buy from good companies, not just good products. Things like voting, things like hate speech. At what point did the company get more engaged in those topics and those discussions to become more advocates and activists around those? So let's just take one brand, for example, Absolute. Absolute has always been on the forefront of cultural moments for 40 years now, been a champion of the LGBTQ movement. The first, I'll call it openly, I think, market to that community. So it authentically has a right to sort of be on the edge of important topics in culture. And we uncovered what was important topics today. And at the time, alcohol's role in consent, the Me Too movement, alcohol's role in being responsible on social media, alcohol's role in making sure we vote responsibly in a very important election. So we absolutely had a right to have a conversation and stand for that. So we started with sex responsibly during Valentine's 2020, moved on to vote responsibly, vote first, drink second (laughs) during the campaign election. And then when things started to open up, actually our biggest impressions, I'd say earned media came in mixed responsibly. And so when people were starting to come back out into the world, really respecting each other's boundaries, some people wanting to wear masks, some people not, let's mix responsibly as we come back into the world. And that got way more media than we thought it would. So it struck a nerve in culture. It was a hot topic and the brand had an absolute right to have that conversation. Not every brand could do that. We do other things at a corporate level that's behind the scenes or with trade, like engage responsibly. That was the movement. When I first joined Pernod, my first week on the job, should we join the boycott on Facebook as a trade organization? And I had just come from Disney Studio where I was working in the dark web, seeing bad actors doing manipulative things with movie ratings, for example. And I knew that this was going to be a -a whack-a-mole situation. Of course, we should join the boycott, but it wouldn't solve it. A month would go by and we'd be right back where we were, which is what happened. So we started a movement called Engage Responsibly, where we've had now 85 companies in the ANA join on this movement and more to come on that. But We started the campaign, we started some technology, we gifted it to the industry because it's something we can't tackle alone. It's going to take all of us. My analogy is like environmental responsibility. We all have a role to play in taking care of the environment, making sure we're buying good, sustainable products, making sure we're taking care of the environment by cleaning up garbage and recycling. We all have a role to play in our social environment and we want our social environments to be sustainable they're really important to our marketing. They're really important to human well-being, but they can also be very harmful. So how do we work together, both industry and consumers, to 
clean up our social environment because it's here to stay. We're always going to be working in a virtual world in the future, whether it's the metaverse or it's on a social media platform. We have to protect these environments where we get together and mingle and have respectful conversations. Of course, over the past 30 years, I've worked with so many different CMOs. And as you know, some come out of more of the creative side. Some come out of more of the data and analytical side. One of the things I love about your background is that you have very, very strong chops and experience in data and analytics. We actually haven't had many people on the show who have that background, especially at the intersectionality of marketing. I have two questions there. One is, how have you used data and analytics to inform the agenda around what you will engage in topically and content-wise from a social impact standpoint? And the second is... Are you using that to track stakeholder interest and behavior? And when I say stakeholders, just for our listeners, I don't just mean consumers, but employees, of course, and partners are just as important as the consumer when it comes to stakeholder engagement. So sorry, it's a two-part question. Feel free to take your time answering both parts. Absolutely. First, I'll just state that I actually have a creative background. It's kind of funny. My dad's an artist. I almost went to art school. I learned about advertising when I was in high school and I said, oh, that is the place for me where I can meld my sort of people skills and interest in business as with the creative arts. And I learned about strategy or account planning at one of these companies. And that's when I fell in love with more human insights. And so when I think about data and every company talks about being more consumer centric, we're going to be more consumer centric. We have a consumer centric mindset. What does it mean to be consumer-centric? To me, it means being data-informed and data decision-led. So all that data is consumer data, whether it's tracking data, whether it's testing data, whether it's marketing mix data, how consumers behave and interact or react to your marketing messages. That is consumer data. And if you are consumer-centric, you're making decisions based on data and data and analytics. So I don't see them as separate. It's just a little bit of a different take, I guess, on being data-led. It's really being consumer-centric. So we definitely are doing all of the above. So I come in and we've overspent, I would say, in making sure we have a strong foundation of understanding how our consumers and shoppers make choice, their path to purchase, and we're making all of our decisions in our investments based on those touch points. It's made some big shifts. We were overspending in events and festivals and activations and underspending in media. And we right-sized that. COVID helped us do that a little bit faster, but we are still going back into events, but probably more right-sized to based on the touch point that matters. We are definitely listening to our employees. Employee engagement is so important today. Keeping employees engaged during COVID, keeping them retained, because there's so many options out there with the great resignation. As a leadership team, we go on listening tours. We have multiple pulses within the organization and several ERG groups that we work with to make sure we're hearing the pulse of the organization from all different angles. And our brands are something that they're most proud of. Our brand work and the work we're doing, whether it's community outreach or it's brand campaigns that have a social message, that is one of the greatest things that is keeping our employees engaged and attracted. So it's kind of a virtuous circle. Yeah. And just for our listeners, ERGs, employee resource groups, which are basically subgroups inside of organizations around particular affinities, it could be ethnicities, cultural interests and whatnot. So there's a sense and feeling of belonging, not just 
inclusion, not just diversity, but true belonging, if I said that correctly. Yes, that's right. And a voice to yes. management about what's important to their affinity group. Yeah. I just want to stay on this employee track a little bit longer. As we record this, there's this very kind of high profile battle, at least in the press, between Governor DeSantis, Governor of Florida, and Disney. And it started with an education bill that critics, including myself, would call the Don't Say Gay Bill, which is, I think, quite discriminatory against the LGBTQ community, just my own personal opinion. And Governor DeSantis has used this as political currency for a larger national stage, but also, quite frankly, to be a smokescreen for very racist redistricting laws that he's also gotten passed in the background while he's distracting all of us with these other bills. And then he also took away Disney's right to self-govern. Everybody can read about it. The reason why I mention all this is because, one, you worked for Disney for a number of years. I think you have a very good sense of the ethos and the culture. And two, it also shows the power and the renewed power and influence of employees, because a lot of this started with Disney employees protesting and boycotting management and their CEO, forcing them to take a stand. And then once the CEO did, in terms of no longer providing political donations and contributions to the Republican Party and Republican candidates who supported that bill in Florida, the governor went on a tear to basically exact revenge and for his own personal political gain. This is Aaron Quitkin's view, not necessarily the world view, just my view of what's going on. So I just wanted to get your take on this as someone who once worked for Disney and also the power and the influence and the renewed power and influence of the employee, especially amidst the great resignation. I can tell you what my experience was and what I was involved in. So I worked at the movie studios. So I was working on insights, analytics, research, anything to do with the movie studios from Pixar to Star Wars and a lot of real-time marketing monitoring. And as I mentioned, one of the things we were doing was seeing the bad actors that would manipulate movie ratings, for example. I was very close when we launched Black Panther, some horrible things that were happening in the dark web that we were able to intercept and get intervention. That's about all I can say. So what I can say is Disney is very focused on making sure that their stories are representing the full breadth and rainbow of the communities they represent, whether it's a very deep cultural story like Coco or a very mythical story. They are very focused on making sure diversity, inclusion is part of the story because that is how our world is today. And so very proud of championing those stories, very proud of making sure these movies are not manipulated and they're told in the way that they need to be told. And having walked away from the company the last couple of years, I wasn't surprised to see when things happen in society, the company's going to have to take a choice, pick a, stand into their values and walk the talk and not just stand behind the stories they tell. So it was, I'm sure, a very difficult decision to make, but they stood behind employees that said, we've got to walk the talk, the values of the company. And all companies and brands are going to find themselves, I think, in the future, having to take a side because no side is not the right side anymore. So you have to take a side and there are consequences to any of those decisions. You're going to probably alienate some, but you're standing in your values. You're going to do the right thing. Yeah. And I think the companies now, all companies have to probably thicken their armor to understand that in an era of Bill Maher coined this, I did not, but I love it. Reactive partisanship. Everything's political. Everything's kind of quick react. You're going to take incoming 
especially in a very divisive environment. And you have to realize that sometimes incoming comes with a price. Sometimes that price could be a derision in shareholder value, whatever it is, but you have to play the long game. We've seen this with Ben and Jerry's recently too, when they decided to make decisions about where and where not to sell their ice cream. So you had one side saying that even though the founders are Jewish, that they're anti-Israel and anti-Semites, but they're not necessarily. And then questioning, well, how come you're not also leaning to voter registration rights and things like that? So I think part of it is you have to pick the lane, you have to stay with it, you have to listen to your employees and your consumers, and you kind of have to follow your own moral compass. And I think Disney is so interesting in that, like you said so eloquently, they are and have been for more than 100 years kind of a surrogate for our culture. They represent who we are, and that changes, and they have to change as well. And they've definitely had their own issues. Any company of that age is going to have their issues and, and make some bad decisions. But it's not the decision you make. It's how you react to the bad decision you make. And I'm happy to see that they're standing up. And I do think this is a long game. And I do think that this is man versus mouse. And I think mouse is going to win. It's just going to take some time. Disney goes through some ups and downs through their history. They've always come out just fine. I'm sure they will weather this one as well. But again, not without some little bit of casualty along the way. And that's their choice. And you got to be proud of leaders who make a stand. You know, what's interesting too, not to go off on a tangent, but I might as well. If you think about all the properties they own, so to put the movie studios aside, this is the largest entertainment company in the world. I think they're more than 200 billion in revenue. They're bigger than Sony by, I think, 2X. They could use those properties to really drive a lot of counter offensive counter messaging against the governor and against Florida and against kind of the hate that's being thrown at them. But they're showing incredible restraint. They are Michelle Obama. When they go low, we go high. And I think that has not really been written about or reported. It's just one person's observation. And I think there's something to be said for that. Agree. <laughs> okay. So from Disney to COVID, I think you joined either in the middle of, or definitely in the year of COVID with this new role. June of 20. March, I was with Disney, had just kicked off in February, a large piece of work that, of course, got sidelined, had to furlough some of my team. It was just really tough times. Biggest entertainment company, like you said, and everything just shut down. Even sports, think about it. It was tough times. And there needed to be some changes, I think, coming. And I just, I talked to my boss and I said, it's probably a good time to help you figure out a new way to get work done. And I'll start looking for something else because I knew that budget wasn't coming back for multiple years. And so I started looking and I asked Ann McCurgy, my CEO, who I've known since the Frito-Lay days, if she could be a reference. And she told me no. <laughs> I was quite shocked. And <laughs> actually what she did was she asked me to come be her CMO. And I at first said, no way, you need the best CMO out there. I gave her like five names. She was in a CMO search. And after about a couple of days, she came back to me and said, here's why you're the right choice for now and the best choice for now. And she rattled off all the reasons. And it, primarily, it was because we had so much foundational work to do to be really grounded in the consumer, the insights, the marketplace, choice drivers. And that was my wheelhouse. So I was able to really come in and I think set a new foundation for the marketing organization, built a lot of new capabilities, hired a whole bunch of new expertise to build a modern marketing machine, I call it. We're experimenting with some really cool stuff on dynamic content and our data platforms. So I was just thrilled to have the opportunity. It's been almost two years now, and we're just getting started. 
So congratulations. I love hearing stories like that. And the fact that you have such a tight relationship with your CEO, and obviously you guys work together at Frito-Lay, but still we're in similar cohorts. We've worked enough years, I think, to look back and look around and look ahead. And would you mind commenting a little bit about the journey and the changing role of the CMO from maybe 10 years ago to today to the next 10 years? Because look, some companies are like, we're going to get rid of that title. We're going to get rid of that role. And we're going to have chief revenue officer or chief commercial officer or whatever. Officer. <laughs> chief growth officer. Yeah. I mean, it goes on and on. And there's TCMOs and all oh, whatever. Chief engagement officer. And I'm just kind of curious, and you've worked across multiple industries now, what you think the role of the CEO is today versus 10 years from now. Let's it, say five years. Sorry. Maybe. Definitely changing. In fact, I was in a program where we heard about I think it was Corn Ferry that scraped CMO job descriptions from 2019 to 2021 or 2022. And only a third of the content is the same. The CMO role has expanded a great deal and it's very cross-functional today. So if you're involved in generating demand for whatever product or service, that demand has to be coordinated with supply chain, with sales, with even HR to agree so that you know where your organization is going to need new and additional resources as a brand, as a company grows. So it's a very difficult cross-functional orchestration job internally, not to mention the incredible fast change of how marketing gets done today. You can't be expert in all these spaces. So what I've created is centers of excellence around data, content, Media. So I brought media in house because it's so much more complex than it used to be. And we have insights and I have a whole team that's just all about culture and inclusive marketing to make sure that our brands are being appropriate, but also really authentic and relevant. I have my co-mark, which is my committee of marketing executives. It's not my direct report. It's a growth council. It includes finance. It includes supply chain. It includes legal. It includes of course, the brands and media, but innovation, it's a total team sport today. And it's hard. It's not easy anymore. And so I have a number of right-hand people that I have to delegate to, to get things done. And we all have to have sort of the same vision mission to get it done. And it took a couple of years. I think we're just starting to groove our system. And I think you're going to see big things. I love to hear that. And I think people for the longest time, who are uninformed, they're not part of this world, think that marketing is just an amplification, whereas marketing is actually driving the business in multiple ways. Like you said, marketing is the red thread. I wish there was another term other than marketing because it's, it's such I a misnomer. I think marketers do themselves a disservice when all they want to talk about is the cool stuff they're working on. It doesn't resonate inside the company. It's not really the end goal. It can be the means to the end goal if done well. <laughs> I talk to my team about if we're doing it right, if we're growing the business, growing sales, growth, and we're building strong brands, strong equity, consumer love, passion brands, whatever you want to call it, we aren't just being marketing, we're being market makers. We're driving value to the consumer, value to the company, value to the shareholders, value to society. And so our goal is to become market makers. That's how we like to talk about marketing. I totally hear that. I totally do. And I like to hear that as well. It's such a broader aperture for kind of how we look at your role and also the role in the future. 
So Pam, I just wanted to thank you again for coming on, for being so open and so honest. And I loved hearing about your journey as well. I think it's super cool. I should also say, this is just, again, my own opinion, bringing media in-house is so smart because when you think about digital marketing spend, so much of it is algorithmic and controlled by just a few, meaning Facebook and Google. And really what you need to focus on is content and engagement, not necessarily worry about the cost structure. So you might as well just bring it in-house. That's really freaking genius. I want to clarify one thing. We do work with Wavemaker. They're a fantastic partner. I have a media team that works closely with Wavemaker versus the brand teams each working with Wavemaker separately. And we are building in-house capability around data and audience building. But Wavemaker is a very important part. I didn't want to misspeak there. <laughs> no, no, that's cool. They're probably not listening anyway. It's totally fine. <laughs> All right. <laughs> And just one last thing. This will be superficial. It's the only superficial question in the entire show. Do you have a favorite spirit and which one is it? Favorite brand or favorite spirit? They're two different things. So I'm definitely a tequila drinker. So I love Avion. Avion 44 Extra Añejo Reserva 44 is my favorite. I'm with you. But my favorite brand is Absolute. I grew up on it. It always will be. We just had a really successful engagement at Coachella and in the metaverse, if you hadn't heard about it. We had over a billion earned media impressions in the first weekend, and I don't even know what last weekend was. So really wonderful brand that has a lot of potential and latent, I think, love, but we need to bring that brand back. So that's where my heart is. (laughs) I love it. Thank you so much, Pam. Good luck with everything. And we will continue to track your success. I appreciate it. And also all the different things that you guys are doing, especially when it comes to social impact. So thanks again. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful, purpose-driven companies, organizations, and people. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our production team, including Maria Bias, Michael Grubbs, Anna Lamb, Haley Sackett, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show, sponsorship opportunities, and hosts by emailing BOP at kwtglobal.com or visiting aaronquitkin.com. Find us on LinkedIn and Instagram under Brand on Purpose Podcast. Mm-hmm.